Welcome to Dreaming in Color, a space for social change leaders of color to reflect on how their life experiences, personal and professional, have prepared them to lead and drive the impact we all seek. I'm your host, Darren Isom. This is Dreaming in Color. Raymond Foxworth is the Vice President of Grant Making, Development, and Communications at the First Nations Development Institute. He oversees the organization's national grant making and fundraising activities for Native nonprofits and tribal entities. He served as a Deputy Director of Development and a Senior Program Officer managing projects and research involving Native food systems, family economic security, and capacity building for the Native nonprofit sector. He's a citizen of the Navajo Nation, served on the Board of Directors for Native Public Media, and he currently serves on the Board of Directors for the Native Arts and Cultures Foundation. He's a prolific researcher with a PhD in political science from the University of Colorado at Boulder. With this knowledge at the ready, he joins us here today. So, Ray, so thankful to have you here with us today. And the people at home don't see this, but your fate is fairly tight as well. Good job with that. Looking good. As you know, I try to pass the mic off to you to start uh, for you to offer us an invocation. So I would love to see what you teed up for us. Certainly. First, thank you for having me. Look forward to talking with you over the next few minutes. So the invocation that I brought today is a poem by Wanani K. Trask, and she is a Native Hawaiian scholar, activist, an important thought leader in the Native Hawaiian sovereignty movement. And she passed away last year. So when thinking about this today, this poem immediately came to mind, and it's called Apologies. Slogans of cheap grace rather than land, quote, we apologize, but not one acre of taro, one river of water, one handful of labor, quote, we apologize, and all our dead and barely living rejoice. For now we own one dozen dirty pages of American paper to feed our people and govern our nation. So this poem is really a response to the 1993 apology given by Bill Clinton to Native Hawaiians for the U.S., their illegal overthrow of the sovereign nation of Hawaii. And basically, she's calling into question the significance of that apology and essentially saying it's worth nothing more than the paper it was written on um, because no land has been given back, no kind of reparations or compensation or justice for Native Hawaiians. So, that's what I brought today to start this conversation. No, thank you for bringing that. And that's that's a powerful piece to start with. It speaks for itself. So we say words count for a lot, but in some ways, words only count for so much, right? So that apology is exactly. fairly empty unless there's something to back it up. That's for sure. Well, I wanted to kick it off. And, you know, one of the things you have a looking for this conversation, uh, you have such a wonderful, interesting background. And I think that one of the things that I really enjoy about you is that you come with this amazing set of assets that you've developed over time from your upbringing, from your community. Uh, and I would love to just make space at the beginning of this conversation for you to talk a little with us, share a little bit with us, and describe for us kind of your upbringing as a Navajo citizen uh, and how that in many ways uh, informed the values uh, that you bring into your work and into your thinking. Certainly. Well, first of all, I always have to acknowledge that I come from a, a long line of, of strong Navajo women who defended the land, spoke the language and tried to teach me as best they could what it means to be to be a Navajo and a good Navajo citizen. I'm the product of a single mother 
she raised myself and my sister on her own. And we sort of moved around a lot throughout the U.S., but always sort of came back to to the Navajo Nation and the Navajo Reservation. And my family is from a place that's today called Tuba City or the Coal Mine Canyon area. And it's a place that growing up, my mom would tell me these stories about the history of Navajo people there. And one of the things that she always told me was the people in that area, the Navajo people in that area were people who were fierce resistors to colonizers, both the Spanish and American colonizers. They were people that refused to make the long walk when the federal government did their roundup of Navajo people. They were people that always believed that that was where we are from and where we came from. And later in history, in the 1950s and onward, there was active movements on the Navajo Nation to remove Um, Native citizens from a place called Blue Canyon, where my great grandma has lived for ages and ages. And she refused to leave. This was in the area that's called the Navajo Hopi land dispute historically. And she refused to leave and at times had to take up arms to defend herself from the Bureau of Land Management, who would come and harass Navajo citizens there or harass their sheep and things like that. And so really what that has always taught me is like always have a critical analysis and always bring a critical lens when thinking about current problems and challenges and never forget that like whatever you do, whatever I do, that it's about the land. It's about fighting for the right to be Navajo. It's about the right to for Navajo people and other Native nations in the U.S. to govern themselves. Those things are important. Those things should be central to anything that I do as I grew up. And, and so I sort of held those values closely and they continue to find who I am today. No, that's, those are all great points and, and love to hear that. I would, and there are a few things there I'd love to push on a little bit. That's a great story. And one, I love that you started by honoring uh, the w- women in your community and the strong female leadership. And I, I tell the story all the time, being from New Orleans, I grew up in a matriarchal culture where women basically ran the show. And you learn that very quickly, that they were not only the showrunners, but they were also the culture carriers. They were responsible for keeping the culture going. And so I would love just to talk, hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, what that meant for you to have women and important leadership roles and how that plays out in the work and the thinking now as well. Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up, I probably didn't, it was just a fact of life. It wasn't something that stood out to me as unusual or odd. It was just a reality of who we are and who we were. And my great-grandmother, who just passed away probably about five years ago, was over 105. She was sort of the the glue that that kept us together. And she also raised my mother. And and so my mom looked at her as as her mother. And so I guess I, I what I would say is I feel lucky to have had that perspective and and lens growing up. I think that for Navajo people, we're we are a matrilineal society. Our lineage is passed down through the women of Navajo. So I am who I am based on my mother's clan, and she is who she is based on her mother's clan. And of course, we acknowledge the father and the grandparents and how we talk about ourselves, but those are our first clans. And so. Um, I am Kiyoani. So that worldview, that perspective, I think, has has always 
shaped who I am. I think today, a lot of, in Indian country, I think there, there are a lot of amazing women that are doing great leadership work of native nonprofit organizations, of tribal governments, and really trying to raise the flag about like, we need to remember the significance of women in not only indigenous struggle, but in indigenous society, um, societies across the, the U.S. Because, you know, before Europeans came here, women were central to how we organized ourselves, how we perpetuated culture and things like that. So for me, it just was a thing of life. It was never anything unusual. And I think today, reflecting back, you know, it may seem unusual to some people because we didn't really have strong male figures in my life. But honestly, I think I probably ha- I was so lucky and fortunate to 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 grow up with that perspective and, and that understanding. So, no, that's really I mean, I, I think that there's some, something very powerful in, in talking about how it was just normal to use. I think so much of this work for many of us is like we have these personal stories that you normalize something that at some point you look up and realize, wait, everybody's not like that. Right. Like you, <laughs> you have these very normal narratives for you that are quite disruptive. Right. Like and so many of us have been blessed in many ways with this normalization of things that you look up and you realize how unique it is, but it's just normal for you, right? I have a few other things there I would love to ask you about, but I want to jump in a little bit more and have you talk about, you talk about this connection to the land and there's something actually quite narrative disrupting there as well, right? This, this strong sense of belonging that comes with like, you, you're not, you, I belong here. I don't know what you're doing here, but like, <laughs> this, this is my space. This is my land, right? Uh, I'm questioning you, right? So that's a very, I mean, not honestly, it's, it's, I mean, it's silly, but it's, it's a narrative disruption, right? Um, but I would love to just hear a little bit more about how that connection to the land also, you know, equates to connection to the people in the community for you. Yeah, I mean, I think when we talk about indigenous struggle today, it's all about the land. And it's all about the land because the theft of land, the theft of indigenous land is and was at the heart of colonization. It's at the heart of the ongoing settler colonialism structures that we have present in the United States. And so land, I think, number one, shapes struggle. Secondly, I think land, at least from my perspective, also defines who we are and and where we come from. You know, I would talk to my mom when I was young and, and she would tell me things like, oh, you know, these white people, she means white anthropologists, tell us that we didn't come from here and that we came from Alaska or something. She was like, you know, she tells us, but an Navajo people, we believe we always were here. We came from here. Our emergence is from this place and from this geography. And so very early on, I, I learned about the importance of land and landscape and what that means to identifying myself as an Navajo person. And then as I grow, grew older, you know, I learned about the importance of land in terms of indigenous struggle and in terms of, you know, land has historically shaped this song and dance between Indian nations and the federal government. And if we're not talking about indigenous land rights, if we're not talking about the theft of indigenous land, in addition to um, the inherent rights to sovereignty of Native people, then we're probably we're, we're just playing lip service to to indigenous rights today. So for me, land has always been important, not only in terms of it defining myself, but also defining indigenous struggle. I guess the corollary to that is also to indigenous struggle is also indigenous liberation. That indigenous liberation is rooted to and defined by the land. 
I was literally going to come in and say there's a, p- a marker there about this idea of land as a marker of liberation as well. So thank you for summing that up, making the point for me. I think it's a really powerful one. I know that you spent quite a bit of time both in you know reservation territory, but also within urban settings. And I, w- I would love to hear you talk about how in some ways that identity that's so land shaped, how does that change or how does that become even more pronounced as you kind of divorce yourself from the land and in other places where you don't have the same connection? And what does that look like? Yeah, I mean, for me, it wasn't a difficult thing because, I mean, I just knew, I grew up just knowing I was Navajo. I grew up just knowing who I was and, and where I came from. And even though I might live in Colorado or at some point we lived in California, at some point we lived in Hawaii, at some point we lived, you know, I, I'm in New Mexico today. I know I'm Navajo and I may not be in the Navajo Nation, but I know who I am and I know where I come from. And so for me, I've never really had any issues or challenges in terms of reconciling that and what that means. It's just who I am and how I see the world. So, yeah. No, it's not it's not for question. It's pretty straightforward. I appreciate that. <laughs> I want to jump a little bit and talk about I mean you you spend you spent quite a bit of time navigating both the academic and social sector circles. And in previous conversations, we've talked a bit about this idea of navigating white dominant institutions and, and, and bureaucracy as a force of white supremacy and, and the exact opposite of liberation, oppression to some degree. I would love to hear you talk a little bit more about kind of, you know, navigating roads and worlds that are riddled with bureaucracy and how you've come out on top of those and, and managed to find some success in those worlds. Well, um, I would not trigger anything for you there. <laughs> no, no, no. Navigating. I was, I was laughing at navigating because it's that's a funny term. I would more describe it as like stumbling or fumbling <laughs> my way through. That's probably a more accurate description. But I mean, as you say, uh, both philanthropy, the social sector um, and academia are white dominated institutions are white dominant institutions. And what that means is, at least for me, is as a native person, right, they dismiss our existence, they dismiss our worldviews, they dismiss our belief systems, you know, we are essentially made invisible. Um, And that's an intentional act by those institutions. And the way I sort of just see myself um, operating in those institutions is really just keeping in mind the responsibility that I know that I have to Native communities. And that's just to show up, um, bring my best self, and honor the people that have come before me in terms of trying to do what's right and what's best in the moment. And at times, don't get me wrong, I stumble, I fall, and I still am learning today. But I think those values of respect, values of reciprocity, values of being Navajo and knowing what it means to be a Navajo person are really what guide me. I think that even in the face of different kinds of adversities that you see in both social sector and academia, you know, if you, as long as you're being yourself, your authentic self, and remembering you're standing on the shoulders of others, and you have a responsibility to remember that in terms of how you navigate and maneuver these spaces, then I don't think you can go wrong. So that's sort of how I imagine my role and stumbling through these places. <laughs> no, a wonderful expression for that in, in French, à tâtons. Like you're, you're, you're literally feeling yourself around the room, right? Feeling yourself through the room and trying to figure out the space and where to go next. And I do, I mean, you've talked in the past and even here about those values that drive you uh, in the work itself. And one of the things that you've just articulated 
beautifully and, and transparently is just the belief, your belief in Native people and, and that belief and that, and that sense of security and, and that sense of respect, being able to assert that even in the face of erasure. Right. And I would love, you know, so many of us in this space, particularly BIPOC folks, as we're thinking through our work, and you, you said this a few times, and I feel like it's very compelling. So many of us feel this sense of uh, leadership as a calling. Like, literally, we, we're here because so many people have sacrificed for us to be here. <laughs> right. It's, it's, this is part of a longer story in which you're playing a role and you kind of have an obligation to play the role because so many people, I think about this all the time, like the number of people who have sacrificed for generations for me to be here. And I joke all the time, you know, when you have these work problems and you're dealing with problematic white people, of which there are many, right? And you're like, and this is why I went to school to deal with these problematic white people. This is literally my role, right? (laughs) This is literally why I went to school, right? But I would (laughs) love to hear you talk a little bit more about, you know, as you reach back from a security perspective, as you reach back to the stories that you want to elevate and tell, as you think back to the people who inspire you, uh, when you come out of those <laughs> difficult meetings where you've been uh, feeling yourself around, what are the voices? Who are the people that keep you inspired? What's the cap? What's the hat that you bring into the room? Like whose voice are you are you you're channeling as you navigate those rooms from a responsibility perspective? <laughs> well, the first thing that comes to mind is my mom, mainly because when I was growing up, she would always tell you that tell me that mouse going to get you in trouble. And so I always have Listen, to remember Ray, that. I'm, <laughs> I'm laughing because <laughs> my mother would tell this exact same thing. And I, I last time I was home, I was like, you know what? My mouth has never gotten me in trouble. It's been my biggest asset. Right. It's like that's because I taught you how to calibrate it. That's why. Right? <laughs> that's exactly right. That's what I have to remember is like, don't say that. Like, don't just filter yourself. Um, <laughs> act like you have some home training. So that's the first thing is like, I always remember my mom because usually when I want to say something because someone has said something offensive or um, ignorant, the first reaction that I have is probably not the best reaction. And so I have to let it sit so my mouth doesn't get me in trouble. Don't let it sit too long, though. I mean, don't let it sit. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) I've had to learn not to let it sit too long um, because I think I've had to learn to be more outspoken than I am probably That's an innate in my DNA. But nonetheless, I think like when I'm in those spaces, I kind of feel like I have one of the best jobs in the world. Like I get to work with Native people across the U.S. and see the great innovation that they bring to work in their communities. I get to see brilliance, the love for community and all of these things that I think we have been told at least in terms of dominant culture, these things don't exist, right? In Indian country, they, they, there's no innovation there. In Indian country, there's no love for community there. There's no this there. The way outsiders view Native communities is really deficit-based. It's racist. It's inherently flawed. And so that's what I have to remember when I'm in those spaces is like, I'm in these rooms, not for myself. I'm in this meeting talking with some funder, not for me. And so that also means that I have to, at times, put my pride aside or put my ego aside and realize that there is a greater purpose in these spaces and that I'm representing others. And (laughs) sometimes I don't get it right. Sometimes I stick my foot in my mouth. Sometimes I fall flat on my face. And I just have to take that as part of my own learning and, and growing because that's the other thing I guess I've learned in this work is that You have to constantly learn and evolve because not only do like the faces of racist white supremacy change, but your 
tactics and your strategies to counter that also have to change and evolve to match the elusive nature of of racism and, and in the indigenous in the indigenous context colonialism show up in our in our work and so for me it's always keeping in mind the great brilliant people that I've had the pl- privilege of work of working with and continue to work with today and that includes the brilliant and great people I work with at First Nations but then secondly remembering like there's a greater purpose and I always have to be learning and evolving if I'm stagnant or not thinking about the future or not trying to critically understand or examine this sort of institution or, or the structures of philanthropy, then I'm going to be caught flat-footed and not know how to beat back these repressive and oppressive kinds of institutions. So you, you can't, you can't let them catch you off guard. You got to be exactly you gotta be ready. <laughs> if you stay ready, you exactly. have to get ready, right? Exactly. Now, <laughs> I do. I, there is something, I mean, powerful there. And I'm reminded of the, the wonderful Octavia Butler, uh, quote, I feel like I quote Octavia Butler every other day. It's just where my mind is these days. Uh, the only God is change and thinking about how do we, you know, the role of innovation and changing in all of our work and all of our thinking. And you, you know, I would love to spend some time talking about a few problematic narratives <laughs> that you challenge in your work and in your thinking, but would definitely like to spend a little time talking about kind of the role of innovation in, in your mind, in Native life and Native exuberance and Native success and Native culture. If you could just spend a little time talking about that, that'd be great. Yeah, what I often tell people when we talk about innovation is that, especially non-natives, usually not people of color, usually people that don't understand the history of the U.S. is what I usually try to tell them is like, what you, what you need to understand about indigenous peoples in this country is that they have survived deliberate and ongoing attempts to extinguish their cultures, their language uh, languages, and remove them from their homelands. Intentional, intentional as hell. Intentional as yeah, hell, right? Exactly. They have survived these things. They have persevered in spite of these things. And to me, there's no greater innovation than knowing that, that what it means to be a Navajo today is a direct result of the innovation of, of my ancestors, of Navajo people, that they had to survive and fight colonization. The land that the Navajo Nation has today is also because of that spirit of resistance. And so when I think about innovation, to me, that that is the impetus of, of innovation in terms of thinking about indigenous resistance and indigenous innovation today. It's in that spirit that we begin to see different kinds of indigenous organizations and indigenous leaders looking at solving community challenges, whether it be around economic development, about liberating, perpetuating indigenous languages, whether it be about controlling local food systems. Those streams of thought today show up because of that innovation that existed in indigenous communities across the globe in their efforts to to beat back repressive, targeted violence that sought to eliminate and extinguish who they are. And if we don't acknowledge that, I think that we can't really have an honest conversation about what innovation is. Innovation isn't trying to build a spaceship to outer space to pollute <laughs> to pollute folks, uh, folks can't see me shaking my head over here but yeah, yeah please, please keep going right yeah. like please please don't to, stop. yeah to pollute <laughs> outer space that's not that to me is not that innovation ain't it. That, that, ain't it. that is rather actually continuing a long history of tearing down natural resources of disrupting national landscapes and thinking that what exists in 
this physical world is um, ours to tear down and use as as we see fit as individuals. That's that to me is not innovation. That is actually just it's on brand. For it. Yeah, <laughs> I was going to say it's that is on brand, right? Like it's that's capitalism, of a problematic that is, narrative. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so that to me is the, uh, back to innovation. Those stories, that history of survival, to me is those are the roots of innovation in terms of how I see and define indigenous innovation. No, no, I appreciate that. And I think that one of the things that you've noted here, which we've noted in other conversations as well, is that one, as I say all the time, uh, oppression is clever, right? So oppression changes and it shifts and you have to be ready for it. And you have to be ready for it and, and you have to have your response ready. You have to be able to shift with it as well. And so there's a form of innovation that is definitely responsive, right? And defensive to some degree, because uh, you are and you talk about working with funders, working with different leaders who are problematic. And sometimes you're in a room, you're like, "Ooh, that's new problematic language. I, that's let, let me write this down. I have to figure out what to do with this. I haven't heard this one before. I don't have to think on that one. And so I think there is something to be said about this idea of, of innovation being a response or at least a product of survival and resilience. I think you've also just shared at some point as well, innovation is being able to appreciate gifts and assets that others don't see or don't recognize uh, within a community. And so I would love, I mean, this is something that, you know, I see all the time within my, my Black American story, my New Orleans story. It's that the innovation is also like what you have is what you have. And so you have to make it work, right? And so being able to elevate that as the answer, things that others don't appreciate, that's the Black American struggle, right? It's literally, we're going we're gonna to work with what we got and what we got is enough, right? There's a level of innovation that comes with that to appreciate appreciating those assets in a way that others don't. I would love for you to talk a little bit more about that because it's something you shared with us before that I think is really powerful. Yeah, well, I think connected to that too is this assumption that like we all want the same thing or that we all should look the same, that how we talk about quote-unquote development or developing quote-unquote our communities means the same thing to everyone, which is just extremely problematic, Eurocentric, racist, and all, everything all of, the the, things, of the sort. The things, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so that's number one. In terms of assets, when I think of, first, I have to say this term of assets at times can be a bit divisive in, in some Native communities because it sort of has an association with like capitalism or monetizing something. But I don't define assets in that in that context. But I want to acknowledge that and, and let folks know that, that that's not what I really mean by assets. And I what I mean by assets is like when I talk about assets is what are the values, what are the tools, what are the all the things that indigenous communities bring with them to solve problems, social problems, economic problems, and so on. And when I think about assets in, in Indian country, I think about language is an asset. I think the way we view the world, our worldview is an asset. I believe that how we care for one another is an asset. And I think all of those traditionally in sort of a, a Western worldview are actually not assets. Everyone should speak one language, English. Everyone should be self-interested and about themselves. We should see the world, again, through a patriarchal sort of capitalistic lens. And, and, and to me, for indigenous communities, if we're going to talk about futurism or um, advancing indigenous communities, it's going to be it's those advancements are going to come because of indigenous languages, worldviews, who we are is intact and in place. And so those are the assets I think that indigenous communities that we get to work with at First Nations are bringing as they think about combating, tackling, 
social problems, economic problems, and so on, and looking toward the future. It's beautiful. And we're coming to a close now. Funny enough, it was fast. But I would love, one of the things I've been asking folks, I had a mentor, I joke, a therapist many years back, used to always say, remind me that sometimes hope comes from experience. And as you think about the years ahead and all the possibilities from a a building perspective and a living perspective and and a thriving perspective, what are some things that, what experiences bring you hope? Some experiences you've you've experienced, uh, or some folks that are, are just bringing you hope as you think about building and where we can go. So, what brings me hope? People that know me probably wouldn't describe me as an optimist, but I actually think I am an optimist. That tends to also just be very critical of reality. But I, I a very protective optimist. I like to think of myself. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. That's a great way to put it. I'm going to borrow that. So, thinking as an optimist, I really have a belief in people. Mm. that people actually want to do the right thing, that people aren't just bad. I've been teaching this semester at the University of New Mexico and been teaching a class this semester on Indigenous people's politics. And it's a small class, mostly with non-Natives. And their spirit to try to create a better world that values Indigenous peoples gives me hope. I classify that in the hope of people because these these young students and these young people are really revolutionary in terms of thinking about how how to build a better society and thinking about how we interact with one another and respect and acknowledge difference um, to build a better world. So that's number one. I think at First Nations, every day I get to work with brilliant Native people at the organization, because we, we have a number of Native folks that, that work there. And that always gives me hope because they're a lot smarter than me. They are doing just incredible things and see the world differently and challenge me every day. So that gives me hope in terms of the bright future of Indian country. The second thing associated with that, what gives me hope is the folks we get to work with at First Nations that is people in Native communities that are doing the hard work around language revitalization, around Indigenous food system control, around Native lands, um, environmental justice, seeing their, their care, their compassion, their love for one another and for their work, that gives me hope. And so thinking about hope, like those are the things that get me up in the morning. Those are the things that have me excited every day. And those are wonderful things to be hopeful about. So thank you for sharing those. And as we close the conversation, thank you for all the work that you do. It gives me some hope as well. So if, when you talk with your mom, let her know that your, your smart mouth has been your biggest asset, uh, paired, <laughs> paired with a brilliant mind and a wonderful <laughs> laugh. So that comes for logic all the time. The, 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 the quote, uh, if you're going to tell people the truth, make them laugh. Otherwise, they'll kill you, right? So a sense of humor counts for a lot as well. <laughs> so that is true. And humor is healing. It, it, it really is. And sometimes all you can do is laugh because the world can be a mess. Exactly. That's for sure. I used to have a mentor that used to say, uh, I'm either going to laugh or cry. And, you know, who wants to cry? Who so, wants to cry? I agree. Who wants to cry? <laughs> Thanks, Ray. This has been wonderful. And look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much. My great-grandpa Lee, born in 1889. His daughter, my grandma Lois, born in 1925, and his grandson, Michael Kermit, born in 1947, all voted for the first time in the 1968 elections. The first election, Black New Orleanians were legally allowed to vote and since Reconstruction and the introduction of the grandfather clauses some 100 years before. At 79 would be the first and only time my great-grandfather, a third-generation, college-educated landowner, would vote in his entire life. 
He died the following year, just some years before New Orleans, a forever black city, elected Ernest Morial, the city's first black mayor in its then 260-year history. For so many of us, the right to vote was a hard-earned one, fought over multiple generations, advanced by many who knew they would never see the fruits of their labor. But they fought anyway to shape a world that future generations would enjoy, faith in action. Although long gone, my great-grandpa Lee's daughter, my grandma Lois, remains the fanciest person I've ever known. A fifth-generation Orleanian whose family hadn't known hard times since long before they landed in New Orleans, from the then-French colony of Saint-Domingue, at the start of the Haitian Revolution. Her sartorial and cultural refinement were unmatched, and she lived for the pageantry of Sunday morning church service. A true New Orleans grand dame and the epitome of exquisite taste and pedigree, she always left the house in hat and gloves, demanded and offered respect in every interaction from the pastor to the paper boy, and kept a home that was full of fine things and fresh flowers and bursting with love. She taught me that there is no greater act of militancy than to assert your social superiority in a racist system that exists to ensure your social inferiority and impression. I'm grateful for her lessons on fanciness, not as an act of snobbery or pretension, but as a bold declaration of self-worth, the ultimate act of empowerment. I think so often of the words she offered me before sending me off to college. God's greatest gift to man is that of free will. If he wanted us all to be the same, he would have made us all the same. Our gift in return is living our lives as beautifully as possible. We owe him that much. And as I chatted with Ray, I was reminded of my grandma Lois and the many women who shaped and inspired me through their wisdom and wit. I was also reminded of the Octavia Butler quote that serves as my mantra these days. There's nothing new under the sun, but there are new suns. A true calling for those of us charged with casting those new suns for us to all live under. May they be beautiful, may they be generous, and may they endure. Y'all, that's a wrap. And while the episode is finished, the work continues. Thank you for tuning in and listening generously to Dreaming in Color, a Bridge Band supported Studio Pod Media production. A special shout out to our show producer, the wonderful Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinator, Nicole Genova. And a huge thank you to my ever brilliant Bridge Band production team and family Cora Daniels, Michael Borger, Christina Pistorius, and Britt Savage. Be sure to subscribe and leave a rating and review wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts.